Amen. Great job. Well, Curtis, we learned something about you now. (laughs) We are in Romans chapter 4 this morning. Um, As we have been going through the book of Romans, such a wonderful book of the scriptures that brings alive the truth of God. Uh, Cindy and I have been listening uh, to the Wednesday night speaker videos that we've been watching recently, Chip Ingram a lot. We've started running together and we've been listening to some of Chip's different sermons. And there was one particular sermon I remember that he had. He said, you know, you remember when God's people were in slavery and he sent Moses and he said, let my people go. And Chip Ingram said, if it was today, I believe that God's message to people would be, let my people think. And it's so true. If, if, if we want to look at the book of Romans, which has so much wonderful truth in it, we have to, we have to think. It's not easy. Some of the truth that we explore and, and, and that we re, uh, God reveals to us. And, and so as we look at this section of scripture, uh, it's a concept that was tough, that was unfamiliar to primarily the Jewish listener. And so Paul uses four illustrations. Taking what is unfamiliar, unfamiliar, he takes the familiar to teach it, so, to use as a bridge, something they could relate to in order to teach a great truth. And, and that's what we look at this morning in the text. So turn me to Romans chapter 4, and we're going to look at the first 13 verses. I'm going to ask when you find that text, as is our practice, to stand in God's honor. So read the text aloud. What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, discovered in this matter? If in fact Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about. But not before God. What does the scripture say? Abraham believed God. It was credited to him as righteousness. Now, when a man works, his wages are not credited to him as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the man who does not work, but trusts God who justifies the wicked, his faith is credited as righteousness. David says the same thing when he speaks of the blessedness of the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Blessed are they whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will never count against him. Is this blessedness only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? We've been saying that Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness. Under what circumstances was it credited? Was it after he was circumcised or before? It was after, not before. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. So then, he's the father of all who believe but have not been circumcised in order that righteousness might be credited to them. And he is also the father of the circumcised who not only are circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. It was not through law that Abraham and his offspring received the promise that he would be heir of the world, but through the righteousness that comes by faith. Let's pray. Master, we come, Lord. We bow before you. God, we need to hear from you. Thank you that we've been able to sing to you, to pray to you, to give to you. And Father, now to look at your word. And Father, may your word impact my heart. And may that be the prayer of each of us here, God. 
We want to meet you. We want to learn of you. And that only happens as the Holy Spirit speaks far beyond what um, I could ever say. But Lord, may your word speak clearly to us. And I just pray, Father, that you show us and remind us, God, that you love us. And that through your perfect work, that love is secure. So, Lord, just minister through the rest of our time together. In Christ's wonderful, precious name we pray. Amen. There are some truths that are so foreign, that are so different to our experience, we need some help understanding them. And, and thank God for illustrations where you can take something that we are familiar with to be able to bridge something that we're not familiar with. Spurgeon, uh, a preacher that so many of us preachers quote, he used to say that a sermon is like a house. And illustrations are like windows that let in the light. He says a house without windows is a prison. A message without illustrations is dull and boring and disconnected because we need something familiar to connect us to the unfamiliar. The illustration transforms the abstract into the concrete, the vague into the precise, the invisible to the visible. The best communicators turn ears into eyes, enabling the hearer to understand what is being said. Thus, the hearer says, I can see it. As Paul is speaking to this audience, he's speaking primarily, many of the readers are Jewish. And think about their heritage, their background. They're the chosen people. They're the nation that God specifically called. They're the nation that God revealed himself to and showed forth his his covenant. But in the midst of that, they begin to get the idea that they alone were special, that they alone would receive God's messages and no one else. It's kind of like that that story up in heaven and these people were up there and they were looking around. It was wonderful. It was glorious. But there was this one place and, and, and there was a door there. And obviously it was a section that was, was set off. And, and there was a sign up there that said, do not disturb. And so the question was asked, what is this? Why is there this sign that says, do not disturb? He said, oh, those are the Baptists. They think they're the only ones up here. So, you know, we, we, don't, want, we don't want to mess up their thinking. Hey, guys, through Jesus Christ, we are all. Accepted and received into heaven and into forgiveness and the life that matters. And as Paul was talking to these Jews, they couldn't understand and fathom the fact that God's wonderful grace and mercy is available to all because what everything they had heard dealt with the law, keeping the law, following the law, understanding the law. They couldn't understand that the law was completed in Jesus Christ. It wasn't that the law didn't matter. It was that the law can only be fulfilled and make sense in the person of Jesus Christ who brings forgiveness. Now, this truth was it was difficult to understand. And so Paul, uh, he comes uh, to us as he speaks, because basically this idea of salvation by grace through faith, it was scandalous to the Jews. And, And so let's look at our illustrations here that he uses. Um, The first familiar example he uses is that of Abraham. Now, Abraham was considered to be the father of the Jewish nation. I guess the comparable illustration would be George Washington's the father of our nation. He was the one they looked back to, they had pride in, as one 
God spoke to, as, as one God led to bring forth this promise to, to his people. So as he starts here in chapter 4, he talks about Abraham. He says, what then shall we say? That Abraham, our forefather, discovered in this matter. If in fact Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about. But not before God. And so what he's saying here is, is Abraham... Is the basis of his relationship with God, the basis of his confidence in his relationship with God upon his works, upon his performance, upon his ability to to keep that law and to to be perfect in that matter? He says, now look at verse 3. What does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now, Paul is taking this term that's or this truth that's unfamiliar he relates it to what is familiar which is basically recorded in the scriptures in genesis 15 so I encourage you to look with me back in genesis 15 that first book of the bible as we look at this illustration it says after the word of the lord came to abram in a vision do not be afraid abram i'm your shield your very great reward so God is saying to Abram, don't be afraid. You can, you can hide in me. You can trust in me, Abram. Abram said, a sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless and the one who will inherit my state is Eliezer of Damascus? Abram said, you've given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. <laughs> you know, hey, I've been around a while. I, we, we hadn't had any kids. We hadn't been able to have any kids. Verse 4, then the word of the Lord came to him. This man will not be your heir, but a son coming from your own body will be your heir. Now, he's, you know, he's getting up in years. He could have said, I don't know about this, God. What are you saying? I don't understand. Hmm. But here's what happened next. Verse 5. He took him outside and said, look up at the heavens. Count the stars. If indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. So Abram, he went outside and he looked up in the heavens and he saw all these stars. He couldn't even count the stars. They were so vast. And, and then as he looked up at him, you know, he, he could have started doubting God. He, he could have spoken about it. God, this sounds crazy, but that's not what he did. And, and now we have the quote. It's verse 6. Notice it. Abraham, Abram believed the Lord. <laughs> and he credited it to him as Righteousness. It wasn't what seemed crazy, what could not be done. It was the fact that he had walked with God and he had seen God come through in situations before that appeared to make no sense. But nothing's impossible with God. All things are possible with God. And so it was on the basis of, God, I'm going to believe you. I'm going to trust you because you're God. And that was credited to him as righteousness. Not his performance, but his confidence that God is God. And that God is more than able to meet the need and to provide hope. That was righteousness. Second example. He goes back to something else familiar. A paycheck. Hey, if we work, we like to get a paycheck, don't we? That's important stuff. (laughs) Notice here, he he says in verse 4, Now when a man works, his wages are not credited to him as a gift, but as an obligation. 
I mean, if you work hard and it's time to get paid, and let's just imagine your employer, he, he gets you that paycheck, and, and, and you don't say to him, thank you for this wonderful gift. You are so kind, and, and, and you're so wonderful to give this to me. No way, man. You worked all those hours. You deserve the paycheck. It, it, it is not a gift. It is something you've earned. It's something you have worked for. That's the picture. But then he goes on. Look at verse 5. He says, however, to the man who does not work, but trusts God who justifies the wicked, his faith is credited as righteousness. What is he saying here? He's saying, hey, this is not to the one who has earned salvation. This is the one who has come to understand that God is the only one that can give it. It is a gift. It is not something that that you work hard and receive. It is something you give out of God's vast love and his kindness and grace and mercy. That's the work of God. It's the idea. Notice here. He says. um, His faith is credited as righteousness. The term is often used in theological circles. Justified by faith. And we've often had the picture of just as if I never sinned. But a a deeper, more powerful way to explain that. It's even though I've sinned and will keep on sinning. I have been declared righteous by God. Christ paid it all. When I take the gift and am declared righteous, God never looks on me And sees me as anything but righteous. How's that for good news? You say, God, I've got all this mess. You know what I've done. You know my regrets. You know me, Lord. But this idea of justification by faith. Is to say that God sees me. He sees my sin. He sees that I keep on sinning. But as he looks at me, he sees righteousness. That's Jesus' work, guys. That's what he does. And when we live out of that, it just brings a joy. And that's what he's speaking of here as he speaks of this example. Hey, we can break our fellowship with God, but that wonderful, confident hope that he will not abandon us is secure because of Calvary, because of the cross. Okay, next example is that of David. Uh we all know David, you know, called a man after God's own heart. But boy, he was far from perfect. You know, he heard many sermons about how David messed up in a lot of visible ways. But God still loved him. And in Psalm 32 uh, is a beautiful picture of, of David coming to grips with, with God's forgiveness. Not that there aren't consequences, but his vast love. And, and he quotes from that. Uh, it starts at verse 6. David says the same thing when he speaks of the blessedness of the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Blessed are they whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will never count against him. In Christ, God does not count our sins against us. Isn't that wonderful? Isn't it wonderful to know that God 
He's not interested in digging up my sin. Uh, years ago, and I've said this many times, one of my favorite verses is a little verse found in Colossians 3, verse 3. The, the chapter starts out, and um, he, he tells us that we're raised, our hearts are raised with Christ in His righteousness, and, and our thoughts are raised to be seated with Him in glory by trusting in Him. And then you come down to verse 3, beautiful little verse, he says, For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. I love that. What's he saying? He's saying, my sin, the old me, the part in rebellion against God, the part that can never find heaven and have that confidence that I'll be with God forever and ever. That part of me died. And Christ you died. And now your life is hidden with Christ in God. In other words, Christ covers each of us. And when the Father looks upon you and me, He sees Jesus. It is His righteousness that He sees. Not ours. <laughs> Isn't that good news? He does not count our sins against us. Um, years ago, I heard a great example of Rolls Royce. There was this guy, and he was um, outside of England. He was in another country. He was from England, but uh, he was driving his Rolls Royce, and then the Rolls Royce broke down. And so he didn't know what to do, so he picked up his car phone, and, and he called Rolls Royce, and he said, I don't know what to do. I'm in the middle of nowhere. Um, he says, well, you know, what do I do? And he said, don't worry about it. He says, what's your location? Tell him the location. He said, fine. He said, they fly this guy out on a jet mechanic. Comes out there, fixes the car, flies back. And the guy's thinking, man, this is awesome. The only problem is, I don't want to see the bill. That's going to be a big bill. A lot of money. Well, time passes, a couple of months, never gets a bill. He starts worrying about it. He said, man, something's wrong. And so he... He writes a letter to the company and he explains what's happened. He hadn't gotten a bill and he's concerned about it. He gets a response back. He gets a letter back and he says, Sir, he said, thank you for writing. Thank you for your concern. But our records never indicate any experience of a Rolls Royce ever breaking down. And so as far as heaven is concerned, thanks be to God in Jesus Christ that when the Father looks upon you and looks upon me, the Father says, there's no record of sin in the life of my child. Hey guys, that is what it means to be justified by faith. That's the beautiful picture. And there's one last, one last illustration here. Uh, the final illustration which is given is Abraham's circumcision. Is the salvation just for the Jew? Just for the one who's circumcised? Uh, let's look in the scripture. Verse 9 is the blessedness only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised. We've been saying Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness. Under what circumstances... Was it credited? Was it after he was circumcised? Or was it before? <laughs> Notice what he says. I love it's got an exclamation point there. It was not after. Before. But before. It was not after. 
it was before. Turn me back to Genesis as, as we, you know, as of course he's referring to these accounts of Abraham in Genesis. Genesis chapter 15, uh, 16. Starting down, uh, well, at the very end of the chapter, uh, Abraham has a child through maidservant Hagar. And uh, th- this describes this and, and just uh, this effort. This effort to have a child, to have an heir. Verse 15, end of the chapter 16. So Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram gave the name Ishmael to the son she had born. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore him Ishmael. He's 86. Now, jump right all over into chapter 17. Jumps a few years. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I'm God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless. I will confirm my covenant between me and you and will greatly increase your numbers. Abram fell face down and God said to him, As for me, this is my covenant with you. You will be the father of many nations. And then he goes on and he talks about circumcision and how he wants the mark of, of God upon his life and upon the people to, to be shown forth with the right of circumcision, R-I-T-E, right of, of circumcision. And so then we jot down to uh, verse 24 of chapter 17. Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised and his son Ishmael was 13. Abraham and his son Ishmael were both circumcised on that same day. 99-year-old and 13-year-old circumcised. And every male in Abraham's household, including those born in the household or brought from a foreigner, was circumcised by him. That same day, you had the 99-year-old, you had the 13-year-old, you had all the males in the household, and they received this circumcision. But he says that the salvation, the righteousness was credited not after the circumcision. It wasn't the circumcision. He had that before the circumcision. Look here in verse 11, back to Romans chapter 4. It it says, it was not through law Abraham and his offspring received the promise that he would be heir of the world, but through the righteousness that comes by Through the righteousness that comes by faith. So he's the father of all who believe, not because of the circumcision, but but because of the belief in God. Uh, I guess a modern day example for us is the idea of baptism. Baptism is a mark, it is a portrait, it is a picture, it is a testimony that we have received the righteousness of God through Jesus Christ, that he has forgiven us, that he has offered us hope, that his love is secure. But it's not the baptism that saves us, Rather, it is a picture to the world and to the body of Christ that he has saved us. So it was with circumcision. Circumcision's not where the righteousness came from, but it, it, was, a, it was a way of wit, being a witness to God's work and how that he worked in the heart and in the life of those who trusted him. Now, that being said, uh, where's the law come into all this? You know, does the law have no purpose? Does the law have no meaning? Well, let's look at verses 14 wrap this thing up. I know I said we'd go through 13, but we're going to jump up a little bit further. Uh, if for 
Those who live by the law are heirs. Faith has no value. The promise is worthless because law brings wrath. And where there is no law, there is no transgression. Where there is no law, there is no transgression. What's it saying? It is through the law. The law is like a teacher that reveals to us our true state. Reveals to us our sinfulness. Reveals to us how we have rebelled against God. How we need forgiveness. How we've been separated from the Holy One. And we need to be brought back into proper relationship with Him. That's, that's what the law does. There is within us this desire that we can't get away from. That we can't run from. You know how we all are, man. When, when someone uh, sneezes, what happens? I find myself wanting to sneeze. Or don't you hate it when someone starts scratching? All of a sudden I get this terrible itch. Ooh. Or that great sign, wet paint. You know what happens. I've got to touch it. I just got to see if it's wet. Or I remember an example. You guys know I'm a big ACC basketball fan. Years ago, there was a guy, Jim Valvano. Maybe you've seen that 1983 championship. He's running around looking for somebody to hug after this miracle shot. But uh, I listened to his biography on tape one time. And he's a character. Italian guy. He talked by a minute. And he said, one thing I would always do, at the end of the game, when it came time, and, and, and he said, you know, we'd have a, We'd have just a slight lead. And the other team had a ball. You know, we had a one-point lead. We're trying to hold on to it. The other team's trying to score. He said, one thing I never said to my players, do not foul. He said, because you know how it is, man. You tell them, do not foul. What are they going to do? They're going to foul. He said, so I didn't want to say, do not foul. You know, just play good defense. (laughs) That's how sin is within us. There's that that fight and, and there's that struggle. And the law reveals that to us. So that we can see it. But it doesn't save us. The law just shows us we need to be saved. Guys, we need to be forgiven. And it's so beautiful. Um, in there, uh, as the scripture says, just like Abraham, just like David. Just like the idea of it's not a, ch- a paycheck, it's a gift. Just like the idea of the circumcision points to the forgiveness, but it doesn't bring the forgiveness. So it's in Jesus Christ and in Jesus Christ alone, Paul is trying to share with an audience, although you have worked hard, it is not your works, that is your hope. And that's what it is for us. It is not how good we are, how much we've messed up. It's Jesus. That's what it is. One final illustration. Uh, This is from an article uh, written by Charles Stanley and. Charles Stanley talked about being in one of his uh, seminary classes. And it was a tough class. And then he, he told his class, he said, the majority of your grade will be based on the final exam. So they came into class. They had studied hard. And he passes out the test. And the professor says, I want to tell you something very important. Before you take the test, you must carefully read through the whole test. Do not begin the test until you have carefully read through the entire test. And he even wrote that on top of the paper. Do not begin the test until you've read through the test. Well, Charles Stanley said he started looking through the test. And he started reading the test. And he's like, oh, no, I'm dead. And he said, you could just hear groans and sighs like, oh, no. He said, and people started reading through the test. And he, he said, and he read through carefully, followed the professor's instructions. And he said, he got to the end of the test. And, and at the bottom of the test, 
It said, you have two choices. You can take this test and your grade can be based on how well you do on the test. Or you can sign your name and receive an A. So, Charles Stanley said he signed his name and he turned it in. He said, hey, you know, I get the idea here. So, Stanley, uh, afterward, he talked to the professor and he said, wow. Um, he said, we were stunned. Did you just, he said, you mean we just have to sign this and you're going to give us an A? And the professor said, uh, yeah. And he said, I've had some different reactions over the years. He said, some students would begin to take the exam. They wouldn't read it all the way through. They'd start sweating, just get up and stomp out of the room mad that the professor would give a crazy test like that. He said, other people would read the first two pages. And they just turn the test in blank. So I forget it. I'll never be able to do this much work. He said there was even one guy. He said he even came to the end. And he said, I don't want a gift. I've worked hard. I'm taking this test. And he took the test and he made a C plus. But he could have had an A. And he goes on. He closes. He says, uh, the story, this story illustrates many people's reactions to God's solution to sin. Some people look at God's standard, moral and ethical perfection, throw their hands up and surrender. Why even try? They tell themselves, I, I can never live up to all that stuff. Others are like the student who read the test through and was aware of the professor's offer, but you know, they took the test anyway. Unwilling to simply receive God's gift of forgiveness, they set about to rack up enough points with God to earn it. But God's grace truly is like the professor's offer. It may seem unbelievable, but if we accept it, then like the stunned students who accepted the professor's offer, we too will discover that, yes, God's grace is truly free. All we have to do is accept it. Please quit listening to good views and obey the good news. I like that. God's grace is sufficient. In and of itself, it's everything you need for now and eternity. And so, guys, I come to the end of this. It's grace. Have you received God's gift? He accomplished at Calvary what you and I could never earn by doing all the right things and by meeting all the right standards because we fall short. But the message here is not about good views. It's about good news. God saw our predicament. He came. Jesus lived that perfect life. He died on that cross. He was placed in a tomb. He rose from the grave. He ascended to be with the Father. And He is our hope. And that offer is for anyone here who has just been trying to be good enough to make it to heaven. And He loves you. He wants you to be sure of salvation. And the only way to, to be sure is by believing in Jesus Christ. It's by faith. That's what was credited to righteousness to Abraham. That's still what is credited as righteousness. Now, the other side of this, as we are saved, we need to live. God's call to you and me who are in the faith is not to just work harder. God's call to us who are in the faith 
is to really stop and think how much God loves us and how much He wants to bless us. And when we get that, and, and when it grabs a hold of our hearts, how can we stay silent about such a God and His love? How can we not be connected to others? How can the joy of Christ not flow from us? How can not the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control not be obvious? That's the call. We have an altar that's open. Maybe you need to come. Maybe you need to pray. Maybe there's something you need to share with the people of God. Maybe there's just a decision to be made right where you are. Maybe it has to do with receiving that gift for the first time. Maybe it's living your life out of the foundation of that gift. Man, let's not miss it. Let's pray. Lord, uh, thank you, Father, for the good news. We are never enough. Jesus is more than enough. I pray in this time we call response, invitation. Oh, Master, work. You know where each of us are. And you know where we need to be. I simply ask you, get us there, Lord. There's some decision at this moment that needs to be made. Father, may it be made. This is not a time to do business with anyone but you. And I pray we would. It's in the wonderful, matchless name of Jesus we pray. Amen.